You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. The church has struggled against alternative gospels or false gospels or false teaching from the start. That's one of the reasons Paul wrote this second letter to Timothy. It's a call to remember the gospel and to allow the gospel to function as a standard so that doctrines or teachings or other messages that don't resonate with or reflect the gospel can be identified and dispensed with. So that's 2 Timothy, and that's what we have here. The cruciality of that call to remember the gospel is even more pronounced when we remember that 2 Timothy is likely the last letter Paul will write and potentially contains his last words to Timothy, his young disciple, someone he's mentored, someone he's cared for, someone whom he has loved like a son in the faith. In the passage we just read, Paul, we hear Paul reflecting on his coming death, don't we? He says, I'm being poured out. The time has come. He's preparing his heart to meet Jesus. I've finished the race, he says. And he's going to say later in the letter that he hopes that Timothy is able to come before winter. He hopes to see Timothy again, but this letter is almost kind of a in-case-I-don't-see-you-again kind of letter, isn't it? Here are the things that I want you to remember. The last words that I have in written form to you. As Paul recognizes his death is approaching, he hopes to see Timothy again, but it certainly isn't guaranteed. He writes with urgency, he writes with clarity, and calls upon this young pastor and the church to persist, to be undeterred in their proclamation of the gospel, to persist regardless of the circumstance. That's something that we always do well to reflect on. Not just in the first century, but in the 21st century. What are the things that that can distract us? What are the things that can cause us to be deterred in relation to our mission, in relation to the proclamation of the gospel? And Paul's word to Timothy is his word to us as well. We could put it this way. For Paul, he exhorts the church, don't let your circumstances alter your priorities. Because Timothy's facing certain things, he's dealing with certain things, but the bottom line for him, for us, is that the church cannot let circumstances alter her priorities. So what is the priority? Well, for Paul, it's pretty clear, isn't it? It's the message. He has this solemn tone, he has this striking tone, he he highlights the identity of Jesus as judge of living and the dead, as the one who will come, as the one who will bring the kingdom. And Paul says, not just that I urge you, Timothy, but I solemnly urge you. Like, this is grave, and this is crucial, and it's not to be missed. I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message. And that invites us to ask, well, like, what is the message? Like, we, we think we know the gospel, but we need to be clear on the gospel. And Paul is layered the gospel into this letter as a whole, hasn't he? As he's exhorted Timothy, remember the gospel, remember the gospel. He's reminded him along the way of these 
crucial pieces of the gospel. Just a couple of chapters beforehand in chapter 2, verse 8. He says explicitly, remember, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, that is my gospel. That's the message. That's where we are. That's the thing you proclaim regardless of the circumstances. That Jesus Christ, <coughs> excuse me, died and was raised. Died for our sins and was raised to inaugurate the new creation the kingdom of God, that He's descended from David, which is one of the ways that the church recognized the Lordship of Jesus. He's the Son of the great King who has come to rule over the kingdom of God. And so, there are these aspects of the message all centered on Jesus. And Paul wants Timothy to remember that. He wants him to prioritize it. And you might think, well, obviously we prioritize the gospel. Like, that's what the church does, right? But Paul understands it's very easy for churches to get distracted or to deprioritize the gospel, right? Because other priorities emerge. Other things can attract our attention. And so Paul says, keep these things in mind. Keep the gospel in mind. Keep the big picture in mind. We'll talk more in a minute about the kinds of things that can refocus our priorities in unhelpful ways, but it's worth the church regularly, week in and week out, reflecting on the content of the gospel and reflecting on the purpose of the gospel and the power of the gospel and the effect of the gospel and what it is and what it does and why it matters. And so we've got this story about Jesus who has come to rescue us, who is God Himself come as a fully human being, bridging this gap that was uncrossable by any of us. And because our sin has separated us from God. In our rebellion, we've said to God, we don't want You to be Lord over us. We want to be Lord over ourselves. And if you... Put those lenses on and look around the world. Like, like go to work looking for people who don't want someone else to be Lord over them. Like go to school looking for people who don't want someone else to be Lord over them. Go into your life with those lenses on. I don't want somebody else to be Lord over me. That is the fundamental human problem. We want to call the shots in our lives. And the Gospel addresses itself to that issue with the response that Jesus, having been raised from the dead, is the Son of David. He's God. He's Lord. He's King over all. And His kingdom is forever. And that message, like if we, if we can allow the Holy Spirit to bring us past that, I don't want someone else to be Lord over me, we can find out that the Lordship of Jesus is the most beautiful thing we could ever comprehend or encounter or experience. Because this Lord is the sort of Lord who doesn't lord it over you. He's the sort of Lord who lays down His life for you. He's the sort of King who sacrifices for His people. He's the sort who always does what is right and never abuses His power and never takes advantage of those under His authority, but always, 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 always works for their best. 
in this gospel of Jesus, resurrected Lord, is the pinnacle of a story of a God who is deeply committed to the world that He's made. Even though we've sort of taken the project off the rails <laughs> and through our rebellion have brought sin and death into the world, God doesn't just write it off and start over. He doesn't just dump the whole project and say, time for plan B. No, He in love, in perfect love, is unswervingly committed to the redemption of His creation. And the story of Scripture is the story of God in His commitment to the redemption, not only of a people, but of all things. Everything He's made. So He calls this guy Abraham. A pagan. He says, Abraham, I've got a vocation for you. And that vocation comes with a promise. I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you my representatives. And I'm going to use you to bless all the families of the earth. And Abraham trusted God. He showed us this pattern of what response to the gospel looks like. Do I trust Him to go places I'm unfamiliar with? To do things that might be intimidating? Do I trust Him? Do I trust Him that He knows what's best? And do I trust Him that He's working for what's best? even if it feels counterintuitive to me. And the whole story of Scripture is the people of God struggling to trust Him. Do I obey Him in this circumstance, or do I follow my own desires? Do I honor Him in the way I relate to these people, or do I seek my own interests? that story reverberates throughout Scripture again and again and again until we come to Jesus and the Gospel who is the one descendant of Abraham who gets it right. He's the one who is God's, the answer to God's promise. Scripture says all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. He's the one through whom the nations are blessed. He's the one through whom we are blessed. In the forgiveness of our sins, in restoration of reconciled relationship to God our Father through Jesus and the Spirit, and in the freedom that He offers us from sin. Not just a little bit here and there, not a little victory in this area or that area, but thoroughgoing complete redemption. God says, I want to do that in you. I want to cleanse you from all your unclean, uncleanliness. Ezekiel 36. I want to cleanse you from all your idolatry. When I do that, the nations will know that I'm faithful, that I'm good, that my love is perfect, and that my power is to set you free, knows no bounds. The nations will know that God is God. And He shows His holiness through His people. The Gospel has that purpose as its end. The Gospel in its power of salvation doesn't just 
get me forgiven, it gets me transformed. So the things that bring guilt and shame and an experience of condemnation are addressed and dealt with. And I can experience freedom from those things. And so when we talk about the gospel and we hear that, remember the gospel, we don't want to just kind of take that for granted, do we? Because it's easy to do because we all think, yeah, the gospel, I know the gospel. Jesus loves me and, and, and that's part of the gospel. But thinking through and reflecting on and not just as a cognitive mental exercise, but as an act of worship. Is my life oriented daily around this priority of cultivating love for the gospel, which is the power of God for my salvation and for the salvation of the world, not just for fire insurance, but for the thoroughgoing dealing with everything in my life that is resistant to the kingdom of God and the Lordship of Jesus. And do I make it a daily practice to remember and give thanks for and proclaim that gospel to myself, to my family, to my coworkers, to my neighbors, to the nations? For Paul, that's the priority. And he knows whether it's the first century or the 21st century, it's very, very easy not only for Christians to lose their focus on their priorities, but for pastors in particular as well. This letter is written to a young pastor. And it's absolutely crucial for this young pastor to maintain the priority on the gospel. Because if he doesn't, it's going to be hard for the church to maintain the priority. So this is true for everyone, but it's especially crucial for the leadership of the church to insist on the priority of the gospel and to vigilantly pay attention to things that could potentially cause us to lose our priorities or reprioritize the gospel and demote it in its priority. At the end of the day, Paul understands that the gospel is for God's glory and our flourishing as we get set free from the things that darken us and harm us and as God is revealed as the one, the only one who's able to do that. And so our focus on the gospel is good for God, it's good for us, it's good for the world. But we easily, we easily get swayed. And so Paul says to Timothy, persist, don't let your circumstances alter your priorities. And you think, well, what kind of circumstances? And Paul says, well, your, your, your ministry, your life is going to go through seasons. You're going to have really favorable seasons, he says. You're also going to have what we might call unfavorable seasons, right? Churches, like all of us, like nothing is the same all the time. Life goes through different cycles. We go through different periods. Things aren't what they were 10 years ago. They're not what they were 20 years ago. Goodness, things aren't what they were three years ago for us, are they? There are seasons where it feels like the gospel is just 
like we could just back up and sit down and things would just keep happening. And there are other seasons where we feel like ministry is like pulling teeth and it just, nothing we do, make it works. And Paul says, you're going to go through those seasons. You're going to go, it's going to be good. There's going to be some fat years and there's going to be some lean years. Whatever happens, however it plays out, persist in the proclamation of the message. It's easy to preach the gospel when things are going your way. But there are other seasons where other apparent priorities work their way in. And it's easy for the people of God to get distracted. So Paul lands with Timothy and says, this is the thing, you've got to persist. If you look back over the history of the church, you'll kind of see these cycles working their way in and out, different centuries and different geographical regions. For the first 300 or so years the church was around, you could probably call it kind of an unfavorable season. First 300 or so years, the church was persecuted, sometimes officially by the government of the Roman Empire. In the 4th century or so, the Roman Empire became much more friendly to the church. Even Christianity became the state's official religion. And for centuries, more than a millennia, you could call that a favorable season. The church wasn't being persecuted. The church was advancing and the gospel was spreading. The last couple of hundred years, in the West at least, the season has felt somewhat less favorable, hasn't it? Seems like the trend is kind of back towards we're skeptical of your claims or we don't like your claims. We don't appreciate your gospel. And so like the, the crucial thing for us is to remember this isn't new. And if we skip away from chronology and move over to geography, there are places around the world now where it feels pretty unfavorable. And there are other places where the gospel is unstoppable. At least that's how it feels. It's, it's favorable. It's flourishing. It's advancing. And so it's crucial. Paul just wants Timothy to remember, like, listen, circumstances are going to change, right? Different governments are going to have different postures towards the gospel. Different people are going to show up. Different churches are going to come up with different ideas and different things. And different, uh, there's all kinds of things that are going on. And Whatever you do, however it plays out, whatever cycle you're in, whatever season it is, don't let the circumstances alter your priority. What's the priority? The message, the gospel. Christ crucified, risen, and Lord, exalted Lord. So it gives us kind of, it's comforting really, isn't it? That in unfavorable seasons, the Lordship of Jesus doesn't stop. In unfavorable seasons, the kingdom of God doesn't retreat. Jesus is Lord regardless of the favor or lack of favorability that we deal with. Right? Jesus is Lord. The kingdom of God is the fundamental reality in the cosmos. And the crucial thing for the churches is to be gospel people. Because even if it doesn't look like it, even if it feels counterproductive, even if we're in one of those seasons where it feels like we work and we work and we work and the fruit is meager. The Lord Jesus Christ is not surprised. He is not taken aback. He is not dethroned. 
He is not put off. He is never on his heels. But he does always call his people to be gospel people. Because the gospel is the power of God. For our salvation, for the salvation of our neighbors, for the salvation of the nations, for their flourishing and for God's glory. Whatever the circumstances are, favorable, unfavorable, the church is called to faithfully, faithfully proclaim the message. One of the dangers that we run into in these unfavorable seasons, right, where people kind of come along and say, you know, I don't know that I like your gospel all that much. One of the dangers that we run into is the palatable gospel. It goes down easy, right? It's not so abrasive. There's no rough edges. Palatable gospel. This comes across in some different ways, some very different ways sometimes. One of the dangers of false gospels out there is what you could, has been called the prosperity gospel. Paul warns us against unsound doctrine. So there's some folks, you've probably seen them on TV, get out there and they preach, and they've got a handkerchief that they sweat it on, and they'll send you one in the mail for a $50 donation. <laughs> or if you just believe hard enough, your circumstances will improve. Another false gospel out there is one that de-emphasizes Jesus as a sacrifice for sin and emphasizes Jesus as an example for us to follow. Exclusive. Sometimes this might be called the progressive gospel. It's encapsulated in a conference that happened a couple of decades ago where they basically got up and said, we don't need a bloody Jesus. We don't need all this blood and death and cross. We just need a Jesus who gives a cup of cool water to the poor. Now here's the thing. It's not an either or. The Jesus who died on the cross is the same one who said, go give a cup of cool water to the poor. And when we're at our best, we hold both of those together. We don't have to pick between an evangelical gospel and a gospel that meets people in the places where they are and touches their humanity and touches their life and offers dignity and ministry and care and all of these things. That's one reason that kind of message is so effective. It's because it grabs things Jesus does and holds those up and just sort of sideline some other things. But Paul says, the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. And that's the thing, right? Like if we can kind of take that bloody Jesus who says, you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die for you and I'm going to suffer for you, well, that makes me feel bad because all of a sudden it takes my guilt and puts it front and center. And everybody knows we're in a world now where the worst possible sin you could commit is making someone feel bad. Trigger warning, right? Like, don't make people feel bad about themselves. Whatever you do. 
What if we should feel bad about ourselves? What if the gospel identifies things in us that are wrong, things that are rebellious, things that are sinful, things that are unhuman, or things that need to be healed, things that need to be forgiven, things that need to be restored, things that need to be sanctified? If we mute the bloody Savior... We lose the power of the gospel. But when we worship him, when we offer ourselves to the man on the cross as Lord and King and resurrected Son of David, and follow him, we'll be the kind of people who make sure the thirsty have a cup of water. the naked are clothed, and the hungry are fed. Because that's what he did. And that's why he saves us. To be the kind of people who embody his character. To one another, to our neighbors, to the nations. So we've got to be on the lookout for these false doctrines, false gospels, unsound doctrines. And let's take a minute and talk about doctrine. Because doctrine is kind of a dirty word too in modern Christianity. Uh, it's either doctrine which constrains you or forces you into a box, or it's doctrine which is what seminary professors do in their academic ivory towers that is perceived as being generally irrelevant to what everyone else in the world does with their everyday lives. But Paul says sound doctrine is valuable. And if we don't attend to it, then we are liable to be the sort of people who have itching ears and accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and turn away from the truth. Like for Paul, doctrine and truth go hand in hand. Sound doctrine is truth. And so in this world where like theology and doctrine are kind of dirty words... Can we hear the apostle say, love sound doctrine? And when was the last time any of us said, you know, I really love sound doctrine? Like, I'm glad I'm guessing that. that. That's not the kind of, like, well, we don't talk that way, do we? But maybe we should. I love sound doctrine. Because doctrine just means teaching. And I want it to be solid. I want it to be true. Because I don't want to tell lies about God. If my doctrines are what Scripture and the church teaches me about the truth about God, and I don't love that and attend to it, I'm going to be in a position where my words and my life tell the wrong story. So loving sound doctrine doesn't mean we're stuffy people who just sit in a room and read systematic theologies all the time. You can do that if you want to, but don't think it means you love doctrine. Loving sound doctrine means loving God enough that we're going to do what we have to do to be able to speak well of Him and speak truthfully of Him and live in ways that commend 
truth about him. I mean, that's the issue here, isn't it? Time is coming, verse 3. People will not put up with sound doctrine, right? So, so that's the negative. Not putting up with sound doctrine is not where you want to be if, like, if you want to be with Paul. So he's into this, right? Instead, they have itching ears who accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires, right? So, so you can either love sound doctrine or you can accumulate a bunch of yes men <laughs> who just go, we'll baptize whatever you want to baptize. We'll, we'll affirm whatever you want to do. Like, we don't want you to feel bad about yourself, right? Sound doctrine as opposed to whatever suits my own desires. He says, these folks turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. So would you rather be a lover of sound doctrine and truth or a follower of myths? Doctrine is starting to sound a little better, isn't it? So we really need to kind of reclaim that language, right? This doesn't mean stuffy theology that nobody understands because it has nothing to do with the life and mission of the church. When Paul talks about sound doctrine, he's talking about the truth about God. We want to prioritize that. We don't want to just prioritize it in our heads. We want to worship the truth about God with our hearts, with our whole being. So we're going to attend to that. We're going to focus on it. That's the kind of people we want to be. And for Paul, no cost is too great. This gets back to the circumstances thing, doesn't it? Don't let your circumstances alter your priorities, your commitment to the gospel message. Even if your circumstances involve suffering, the apostle says. Verse 5, as for you, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, carry out your ministry fully. And this was in a season where in the next hundred years or so, the church would experience increasing suffering. Paul himself has said, I've already suffered. Here his words again, verse 6, As for me, I'm already being poured out as a libation. The time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. No cost is too great. We may think initially, in the moment, we don't have to be quite so serious about the gospel if it means being a little more comfortable and avoiding some pain. But in the long run, ultimately, it's the first step down a slippery slope, isn't it? And so for Paul, no cost is too great. He instructs Timothy to endure suffering, and he reminds the church that he has already endured suffering. He's writing from prison. And he's expecting to be executed. I've never had to suffer like that for Jesus. As far as I know, none of us have. So I'm reading through this text this week and I'm thinking, you know, like if the question is what deters me from the gospel because I want to be undeterred 
question is, what deters me from the gospel? At least right now, it's not suffering, is it? As far as I know, no members of Hope Hole United Methodist Church have been swept out of their beds in the middle of the night and taken off to a black site, never to be heard from again. Right? If you know someone that I don't know about, let me know. We'll get them on the prayer list. But I don't know about That happens in some places in the world. Places like China. But that hasn't happened. So I'm, so I'm, so I'm thinking through. I'm like, this, is a, this text, he's telling them, endure suffering. And yes, maybe we need, I mean, we need to be preparing for that. The day may come. All right? But what about tomorrow? Because none of us is in danger of actually being physically harmed for believing the gospel and proclaiming it tomorrow. And I started thinking, what if the greatest deterrent to prioritizing the gospel for us isn't suffering but comfort? The things that distract us from the gospel and deter its progress in us and through our our ministry are things like I can put in some extra hours so I can get this thing I want but don't need instead of showing up for my band meeting this week or going to Sunday school or carving out some time to join a serve team. Or going on a mission trip. We love comfort. And we easily, easily, easily and unthinkingly prioritize an upper middle class life over the self-denial that the Lord Jesus Christ calls his followers to embody for the sake of the gospel, his kingdom, and our mission. Don't we? The issue for us tomorrow isn't, will I suffer? It's, am I comfortable? And I wonder what the church in America would look like if comfortable circumstances weren't our priority. Like if we hadn't taken the gospel and the American dream and braided them together. What do you think it would be like to be an American Christian? Our circumstances can alter our priorities in very subtle ways. In habitual ways, such that we don't even realize we're talking priority. It's just normal, it's just what people do. And An apostle 
imprisoned by an ancient empire, invites us to consider what are the things that deter me. For him, it could have been suffering. He didn't want Timothy to be deterred because he was afraid of what the authorities might do. It might be that for us one day, but today it's something different, isn't it? What deters us from prioritizing the gospel? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hall United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.